Today, we are pleased to bring you a conversation with IBM fellow and CTO of open source technology, Chris Ferris. We're going to be discussing a variety of open source projects, as well as a recent report, The Value of Open Source in the Cloud Era. This report surveyed 3,400 developers and managers to build an understanding of the attitudes and realities in today's development ecosystem. Before we welcome our guest, Chris Ferris, let's say hello to my colleague and co-host, Joe Seppi. Hey, Luke. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Joe? I'm okay, thank you. It's a little overcast today. The weather's been a little weird. Like the other day, it was warm through the night and then slowly got colder through the day, which is always really weird. Like it's flipped around. The weather's been really strange. How about you, Luke? Similar. I think you want to be at your pool, whereas I want to stay out of the sun at all costs. So this is perfect. I like a warm-ish day and then a cool night. That's that's great for me. No, it sounds nice. And look, I have a whole closet full of light coats, light jackets that I like to wear. So I, I prefer a good cool day. So it's nice. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's mean- funny you mentioned I remember that about when we would do events together in New York City. You always had very cool jackets. <laughs> but before we welcome Chris, I wanted to mention a few things, just a little bit of housekeeping. So if anybody has any questions, feel free to drop those into the chat on whatever platform you're watching. And if you're catching this as a replay later as a podcast, Hey, tweet at us. Happy to uh, answer questions post-event. No problem. I also wanted to mention, as always, you can find us at ibm.biz in the open. We have the live stream whenever we're we're going live. Every other week is on there, as well as all past episodes. And then if you want to find the podcasts, you can find all our past episodes as podcasts. And I don't want to forget all the rest of the, the podcast ecosystem. We've got other podcasts, IBM Z DevOps Talks. We have a data science podcast. We have IBM Cloud Podcast, a Call for Code Podcast. There's so many podcasts uh, on IBM Developer, so make sure to check those out. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Chris Ferris. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you, Chris? Welcome. Thanks so, for joining us. My pleasure. And speaking of overcast, I'm just going to warn you. It's like, I live in Florida, <laughs> so... It's the rainy season, which means it's going to rain every day <laughs> for the next three months. And yeah, uh, three months, huh? Yeah, <clears throat> sure enough, it was beautiful this morning, and now it's uh, a huge thunderhead overhead. Yeah, I, I feel like I told the story maybe on the show once already, but like I, I was in Florida once, and I had to. My flight got canceled home. I was there with my wife and son, and we ended up going to the Kennedy Space Center and enjoying the day that we were gifted by the airport snafus and stuff. But anyway, I'm trying to work while my wife is driving, and it starts pouring like crazy, which apparently it does in Florida. And I put in Orlando Airport and put it up on the screen. Okay, great. And we start driving, and I'm working, and we pull into this tiny airport in Orlando. Apparently, Orlando has three or four. It's like an executive one, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and so we're like, this is not the right airport. Anyway, yeah, Florida is crazy. Good luck with that all summer, huh? All summer. It's, actually, my wife showed me a cartoon uh, the other day. And it's, it's, so it starts out, it's at 2.30 a.m. And it's beautiful out, right? Three o'clock. And then she's got, it's got this picture of the palm trees are just, you know, blowing and it's raining hell. And then 3.15, ah! Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Usually it's in the afternoon. Usually it's mid afternoon when the thunder showers come rolling through. Come from the west coast across to the east, and yeah, nails every afternoon. But then it's, it's usually beautiful in the evenings, and you go out dine out by the water. It's, yeah, that sounds nice. It's I, a tough I, life, but somebody's got to do it. So. <laughs> 
I had the flip scenario when I lived in Olympia, Washington, out in the Pacific Northwest, where it's beautiful in the summer, but all the non-summer months, it just rains all the time. But when it's summer and it's nice out, you just really soak it in. It's lovely. Yeah. Plus, in Florida, you learn you have to do everything before about 10.30 a.m. It doesn't get as hot as else. I think, actually, I think out in the northwest, it's going to get hotter than here. It's 90 degrees is usually about as hot as it gets, but it's humid. Yeah. It's not a dry heat like some places. Yeah. So, you know, if you're out playing tennis or golf or something, it can be brutal. Yeah, I can imagine. <clears throat> Cool. Hey, you've been here at IBM for a while. Maybe we could start. You could just tell us a little bit about your what you've been doing and how it started and your your, a little bit of your IBM story. Sure, sure. So I actually am a professional hire into IBM. I joined in 2002. So I'm working on my 20th year right now. And before that, I was working at Sun Microsystems for, I don't know, about 13 years, I think. And I had actually started to work in open source and in around XML in particular and some of the XML parsers starting to use open source and contribute back. And and I started getting involved in a project called EBXML, which was a sort of a joint initiative between an organization called Oasis, the Organization for the Advancement of Structured Information Systems, and, and the UN. And they were working on trying to unify the world of e-business and enabling it to be done through XML. And I had been working on in Sun's IT organization for a long time. And then I joined uh, JavaSoft and they said, hey, you should you have this, this background in e-business and, and systems and so forth. You should get involved in this. And so I did. And one of the co-leads for the organization was my boss. And the other one was Bob Sutor, who is now over in the research in the quantum group. And um, I guess he saw something he liked and <laughs> made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And the next thing I knew, I was working for him. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to hear 20 years for you. I feel like an, a baby at five. And, and which is interesting, my career usually was two or three years at, at a place and I'd be moving on to the next thing. But I'm, I'm happy here for a variety of reasons we could go into another time. But it's amazing, especially I used to live in Westchester. I'm over in Connecticut now, but I couldn't throw a stick without hitting an IBM or and most of them are multi-decade IBM. Uh, I, grew, I grew up in Westchester. I grew up in Rye. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have some friends yeah. over at Rye. IBM right up the street there. Yeah, we yeah. Had a, IBM, we had a timeshare in the high school, and uh, that was where they taught. The eighth grade had an honors uh, course in uh, computer programming, and so actually I, I took that one. That was a lot of fun. That was probably my first introduction to writing software, was writing checkers and chess and various other, you know, poker and so forth on, on the main. That was, that was a lot of fun. But yeah, so but, man, I was basically hired to go and work in the open technology organization, and I've been here ever since. So this has been the only job I've had at IBM. I've been promoted a few times, but they brought me in to try and help open up IBM, get it more involved in open standards and open source. And here we are 20 years later. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I love that this is like a 20-year story in, in open tech and, and open yeah. source and stuff, which really is a good segue into perhaps the first thing we can uh, chat about, like IBM's open source story, I guess you'd say. 
Yeah. A lot of people would say IBM open source, really, until we acquired Red Hat. It wasn't as widely known as it probably should have been just how involved and invested in open source we have been since the earliest days, since before Red Hat was a thing. We were involved in open source and working on working in the in contributing to the Linux kernel, in helping to write some of the software that's powering the web today. Some people working in the very earliest days on the Apache web server and so forth. And I think I'm sorry to interrupt you, Chris. I just wanted to say too that I think it's important to point out too that it's like open source, but also like open stand the open standards standards yeah. work and like open governance too. Yep. You know. I, I, I uh, to concur with you, like often found myself frustrated working in open source and feeling like nobody realized IBM did as much as we do in open source. Yeah. But I, I often would experience where in a lot of the uh, organizations I was in, there would be like a limit for an employer to be a part of the TSC or the committee or whatever. And we were always bumping up against that limit. Like, oh, you got to step down so this other person can come on. It's like, <laughs> we do too much open source in almost. Yeah. And, that, and that's the reality. So we've been doing it for the longest time. Actually, if you reach back in the very earliest days in the late 1990s, when Linux was starting to get uh, a little popular and a certain operating system vendor in the upper northwest started getting a little antsy about their hegemony over the uh, the operating system on the desktop and the server. And, and IBM indemnified its clients if they were using Linux on uh, IBM hardware. We said, go for it. We got your back. And that really helped to legitimize open source for the enterprise. There, there are a lot of financial institutions that started, they were all rolling their own distros and so forth and, and starting to to leverage a lot of open source, whether it was just the like the new compilers and stuff like that, or just the, the plethora of things that were growing up around that ecosystem. And we made that a legitimate thing. And and then of course we helped to found the uh, the Apache Software Foundation. It was our legal department actually was the ones that helped to write the the original Apache uh, software license with the others. We collaborate with others in the industry, obviously, but we helped to bring that to life. And I think, I'm not sure, I don't know if we have anybody on the board now, but for the longest time, we had somebody who was serving on the board. We have a number of mentors there. We have people that are working to this day in, in various of the Apache projects. We also, we helped to establish Eclipse. And now <laughs> that was one of those situations where actually I was at Sun at the time and, and it was an interesting development to come up. Eclipse, what does this mean? You look at these communities, whether it's Eclipse, the Linux Foundation or Apache, and they all started with one thing, right? So Linux, it was the kernel. With Eclipse, it was the IDE framework for Java. And with Apache, it was HTTP. And now they each have over three or 400 projects a piece working on all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the original purpose. And it was for exactly that, per that point that you made about open governance is because it basically created these sort of safe spaces to innovate and collaborate, even with your fiercest frenemies. It's amazing to this day that we have you know, collaborations with in the cloud space with every one of the hyperscaler cloud vendors. And the activities that we do, and whether it's in CNCF for Kubernetes and so forth, very collaborative environment. There's no backstabbing and kind of stuff. Standards was a little bit different. Standards was a little bit more defensive. But I find that open source tends to be a lot more collaborative and innovative um, and sharing of success. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the whole vendor, vendor neutral. neutral. 
governance thing. Maybe turn your volume down. Not sure. I, I was also going to mention, I think it was Brad Topol on a past episode mentioned that when the folks who developed Eclipse found out it was being open sourced, it was a bit of a paradigm shift because they, they're like, oh boy, this is, we spent all this time. We thought this is a product and what is, what are you giving us away? Yeah. Uh, but obviously it, it, like you mentioned it, it has implications and it, it goes, it, it grows bigger than it could ever be standing right. on its own. Th that's exactly right. And, and it's still to this day, still we're, we're encountering uh, situations where I'm making a recommendation that we open source something and they're like, what? We spent all this resource in developing it and it's proprietary and it's earning us money. I'm like, you don't need to have proprietary software to, to make money. <laughs> ask, ask the guys that we just bought for $35, $34 billion <laughs> Everything they do is open source and they're still making a ton of money. And it's interesting, you had mentioned that other operating system from the past that was apprehensive against Linux. And I believe on the last version of it, they even started to incorporate the Linux kernel into it and then yeah. made a PowerShell for the uh, for, for Linux. So it's, right. it's interesting how the, the paradigm shifts change yeah. over, over the decades. Totally. And then VS Code is one of the most popular IDEs out there. And but almost everybody does it to develop on Linux. That's the reality. I think we all had a feeling and had a folk sense of this is how open source works. This, yeah. There is a value and it's right, but there's some confirmation on this now. We, it was a recent study, the value of open source in the cloud era. That's right. Yeah. So it was actually interesting. I had been reading an article that was suggesting that if you're a software developer in the cloud, that you need to know these 10 APIs from, and I won't mention the, <laughs> the cloud provider. And uh, I said to myself, that's just not right. <laughs> I said, because everything that's behind each one of those APIs is open source. And I said, I think it's actually the case that developers, I think their preference would be to have skills in the underlying open source capabilities rather than the proprietary vendors a set of APIs. And, and I got with the uh, IBM marketing team and said, can we do a serious study about just what is the developer sentiment around, whether it's for cloud and for various other data and AI capabilities? What's their preference in terms of what APIs and what, what technologies are they, are they interested in to advance their careers? And it was interesting because my, my sense was, no, it's the open source that they care about. It's not necessarily the proprietary APIs. That comes secondary. But if you're doing container orchestration, you're using Kubernetes, whether it says so or not, that's what's under the covers there. And that's the skill set that developers are looking to acquire. And that's the one that I think that actually hiring managers are looking to find for their teams, because it's easy enough to learn the skin that various vendors put on top of that. But so that they, we studied, we did a study with Riley and they, they surveyed about 3,400 plus and probably evenly split between hiring manager types and developer types across, you know, this the spectrum of uh, enterprise sizes and so forth. And the, the study came back and reinforced my sense that actually two thirds of developers felt that it was the underlying open source APIs and skill sets that helped advance their career. And the other interesting sort of tidbit from that was that over 50% felt that their contributions to open source actually helped advance their careers and essentially netted them more money in the jobs that they did land. And uh, so that 
that was, I think, a very positive thing. There was a huge, there, there was a number of different findings. And I think, yeah, there's the, the link to the report, a huge amount of uh, information in there. But it all reinforced my sense that the things that matter are the skills and the underlying open source, not so much the proprietary API. It is good to get that confirmation because I feel like, especially on this show and just in general, that has been, I think, the message that I've been purporting to folks right. is, hey, get involved in open source. It's a way for you to not only differentiate yourself at your company, but then also get to know that greater ecosystem. And, it, you know, if you want to make mm -hmm. a move or if you you know want to negotiate for that higher salary, you, you might be awesome. But if you're locked away and no one knows what you're doing, being able to work out in the open is a great way of just personal development. Totally. It's a double edged sword for for hiring managers, because having people that are out in networking in these communities and building their own personal eminence in, in open source communities can essentially make them very good targets for the competition to pick them up. And that can advance your career. But I think most most developers, that's a nice thing if they get into a, a, a bind. But I think people like to work for a company that allows them to work in open source. I know uh, a lot of the, the people on our team feel that way very strong. And there's an awful lot of people that are on the product teams that really want to be on our team because they'd love to be working out in open source. And, and so we're trying to turn the tide and, and dial it up a notch to get more and more of the IBM developers that are working on proprietary products to work out in open source as well. Yeah. Can, can you, I'm good. Bit, yeah, I can hear you great, Joe. Good. Sorry. Yeah, I feel like there's there are so many benefits to being an open source. I think one thing, and forgive me if you guys already touched on this, but learning to work with other people in open source in a collaborative way where no manager is telling you whatever, but you have to figure it out with other people out in the open and, and make it work is a really important skill as well. That's right. It's this it's the what they call the soft skills that you learn from working out collaboratively in the open. You're learning to essentially uh, be able to assert yourself in, in a positive way to get your point across and so forth. And that helps. And then, of course, there's the practices that we have out in the open source communities tend to be a little bit more mature, especially from more advanced CI, CD, agile development practices and so forth. And bringing that back into the enterprise is an important part of the overall, I think, attraction. Now, the other thing that I didn't mention about the study was, so yeah, it's two thirds of developers and more than 50% of developers about thinking that it advanced their careers. The interesting thing that I found, though, is that when you look at who's responding, the hiring managers actually felt more strongly about both points <laughs> by about 5%, which was, me. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating to, to see that, that. The hiring managers are starting to recognize that this is important. And increasingly, we're getting a lot of our clients are asking us Boy, we're getting an awful lot of uh, our developers are asking us, can we work out in open source? And we don't know how to do that. <clears throat> so a lot of what I do is help some of our customers to, to work on how to incorporate open source into their, uh, into their thinking, into their practices. Yeah, that's a really good segue because I, I wanted to talk to you more, I guess, briefly, because this could be a whole episode, like how we do that internally. Yeah. And then how do we share that knowledge and what we're <laughs> doing with our clients? something I, I've bumped into as well. Yeah, we actually published the framework, if you will, that we use to encourage more and more open source. So we have annual training to start with, just what is open source and why should you care? And you have to be careful. You don't want to just pick up anything off the ground and use it. You want to make sure that you're using something that 
has a community behind it that's working to keep it current to fix bugs and vulnerabilities as they arise. And we teach them about all the different licenses and so forth. And then we also have some some internal training. We call it the dojo, right? So it's basically an opportunity for people such as yourself, Joe, and, and others to basically help mentor new developers that want to get involved in open source, help them through that 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 process. First of giving them the basic training, if you will, of working out in GitHub and how to land a pull request and how not to be a jerk in the, the chat forums and stuff like that. And But then also when they get stuck and they're trying to get something in, we actually have a lot of people in a lot of the communities that can actually help get somebody up to speed and onboarded and feeling part of the community. So we have we have all of that. And then we have a recognition program every year. We go around and people that are actually uh, leading in the various communities, we can recognize that value. We've got badges. Everybody's got badges now, but we, we've got badges. And then the other piece of it is that we're actually trying to, again, as I mentioned, we're trying to grow the upstream participation from the product teams. Way back in the day, I remember there was a, oh my God, you can't be contaminated by open source. (laughs) Unsafe. (laughs) Or something, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always felt that was funny because if you look inside, peel the the onion skin back a little bit, our flagship web application developer, WebSphere, web application development platform was 70% open source. Okay, so you can't touch open source. Tell me again, <laughs> how does that work, right? So, yeah, and and that was that isn't the only one, and certainly all of the new stuff that we're doing now, all the cloud, AI, and data, all of that is is based on even quantum. Is you've got Kiskit and Chasm out there, and very much out in the open. So the and it it, it pervades every single industry, and we're now starting to see more and more application level stuff is turning open source. So. I was just working with a colleague who's uh, in the oil and gas industry, and they've done this amazing work around open sourcing, if you will, a data analytics platform for oil and gas discovery. All right. So it's some cool stuff. It's some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, I remember being at a conference and somebody coming up and talking to me about open source, and they're trying to get their employer, which was uh, they worked in the auto industry. And they're like very protective and afraid of any security related stuff. But I was, remember talking to them about keep your, the stuff that, that the business differentiators, those you can keep to yourself, but like all the foundational stuff, build it out in the open with yeah. your competitors and help crowdsource the work uh, part of it. And then, mm-hmm. and also help work on security stuff together and mm-hmm. work it all out in the open. I, every time I hear Chris had said in the open earlier, I was like, well, he said in the open. <laughs> also in the open source coming from IBM and oil and gas industry, the, the MQTT standard from, from Andy Stanford Clark over there in Hursley is, is also another uh, great example. Yeah. It's also a good example of the pairing, if you will, of open source and open standards because MT- MQTT actually started as an open standard. And, uh, and then there's a number of different implementations that have mostly been written in open source. So it's been a good partnership, really. Yeah, that's interesting. And we talked a little bit about the Linux Foundation earlier, and I think it's really interesting that the Linux Foundation has become something of an umbrella foundation for all these other foundations. I'm a part of the OpenJS Foundation, and that was born out of merging the JS Foundation and the Node.js Foundation together, which all of them are Linux Foundation projects. I know a a fairly recent one is the Open Source Security Foundation. Yeah. Uh, And you, you do some work in that space as well, Chris? 
I, I do. Yeah, I, back in right before the pandemic, about I want to say in the fourth quarter of 2019, IBM and Google and Microsoft and GitHub and Red Hat started to talk about the need to. And this is this predates the whole solar winds thing. And but we recognize that look, <clears throat> open source is increasingly becoming sort of de facto in every industry, in every whether it's governments or whether it's enterprise. It's pervading absolutely everything. And we need to make sure that we aren't going to be in a situation because we're taking dependencies of some obscure library someplace that nobody's paying attention to, that we end up with some serious vulnerability that causes the world economies to collapse and stuff like that. And so we had some conversations around, so how would we deal with this? The thinking ranging from let's fund open source projects that are needing you know people to come and contribute to them but then there's also yeah but how can we help projects that are that have diverse communities but how can we help them improve their their the practice around secure engineering and developing uh, an effective CICD system that isn't going to get compromised and how do we um, ensure that they have the wherewithal to be able to deal with vulnerabilities in a, in a progressive disclosure of a way, right, where you're not just sort of blurting out, hey, I got a zero day in my <laughs> in, in this cool library. And <clears throat> so there's a number of different aspects of this. Some of it is just, again, badging, but you know, we have the core infrastructure initiative had a badging initiative that you could assess your open source project against a set of best practices in the industry to ensure. And then you get a little badge that you could put on your readme that said, hey, I've got a CII badge. And now we have different levels of, you know, passing silver and gold, I think, are the, the different levels. But they're progressively more and more focused on ensuring that you're able to deal with security vulnerabilities in a reasonable and responsible way. So yeah, I helped to actually with you know work with Microsoft and Google in in helping to set up the OpenSSF and I serve on the board right now and in the process we, now again we because we stood it up during the middle of the pandemic <laughs> when everybody was a little bit concerned about whether we were going to be in business the next week or not. We ended up saying let's not go and dialing for dollars for millions of dollars funding right away. Let's get something going and then we'll figure out how to fund it later. So we're actually in the process now of trying to figure out how to turn it into, just as with the, the, the JS Foundation and so forth, how do we actually get it up and running with staff, with marketing dollars behind it, with full support for any of the operational aspects of things we want to do to make sure we have somebody out there essentially raising awareness of what we're trying to accomplish. With the with solar winds and with you know some of the recent sort of ransomware hacks that have occurred and what was it, Colonial Pipeline and others, and with the executive order most recently from the White House, the everybody's hair is on fire now about the supply chain for open source security. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting a lot of attention. I think that's a positive thing, but I like the fact that we were ahead of the curve and trying to get something rolling before uh, everything hit the fan, so to speak. So interesting. And t- two thoughts I wanted to mention here. On a, a past episode of the IBM Developer Podcast, we had the NSA community team come on and they mentioned using Eclipse and using a lot of open source right. tools and that they, you know, 
obviously there's a lot of strict controls when you get into the, these sorts of government agencies, but that they had work groups to be able to work on that stuff together. And then most recently, I just saw a post they made, especially because of these nation state threats and infrastructure threats. They've actually created almost similar to what our IBM garage is to work with industry partners to be able to work together in this kind of co-working half half inside half outside environment to to address some of these threats. Yeah, that was actually that was one of the things that we were trying to set up. Of course, we need some funding for that. So that's but we wanted to actually set up a an enclave where we could collaborate together on resolving some critical vulnerabilities whether it's in the kernel or elsewhere in in an environment where we had full build capabilities and everything but nobody could see it except you know, the people that had been granted um, access to and but that would allow us because right now everybody's doing it on their own, pretty much. When we had, uh, you know, we had the situation with Heartbleed and so forth. Everybody had to go and deal with how to resolve that vulnerability on their own. And uh, it wasn't pretty. Everybody was doing the same piece of work, essentially. But because we didn't have that ability to collaborate out in the open on that kind of we, we were talking about it, but we weren't able to actually collaborate on the actual fix in the open so one of sorry to cut you off joe but if i don't nope. cut you off you're going to cut me off <laughs> that's uh, what we do that's this is the new york way one thing i was just going to mention one of my favorite podcasts i listen to is called darknet diaries and it, it talks mm-hmm. about a lot of these uh, these cases and it's exactly one of the things you mentioned it's what if a security firm finds that zero day now of course they want to tell their their clients first but right. they want to tell everybody else, maybe someone else is discovering it at the same time. Right. And then how do you, and then if you do, most of those systems are going to take a while to get updated and patched. Right. So sometimes even doing the right thing and, and letting the community know about this vulnerability, those right. bad actors will within a day or two whip up something to exploit that and cause a huge problem in a very short period of time. It's a tough situation. It, re- it really is. And that's actually one of the things was getting into a a best practice for how to set up a responsible disclosure process for reporting vulnerabilities that you uncover. Yeah, and most, the vast majority of open source projects don't have that level of maturity of having uh, an inner sanctum, if you will, of security uh, engineers who can deal with that sort of thing, but where you don't just blurt it onto the mailing list, but you instead send it to a to a mail address that's going only to the select individuals that have the ability to address the problem. Yeah, and that, that's one of the benefits of being in a foundation, right, is they oh, help yeah. you to try to sort those things out and everything. Oh. Yeah, um, most of the, yeah, I say most of open, but again, most of open source is, I like to say, <laughs> most of open source is random. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's the projects that are housed in the, the likes of the LF or Apache or Eclipse that I think are the ones that, have the most maturity. They also have the most prospects for sustained success. There's actually been studies done that projects under open governance tend to do better by and large than their non-openly governed counterparts. You can have projects that are controlled by a single vendor that are done very effectively. But Google is not, there's no, you shouldn't shake your head at projects like Istio and Knative. They're very well run. Would we like them to be under open governance? Yes, absolutely. And we're working towards that. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's a lot of open source. It's just some guy came up with a real, or gal, came up with a really good idea, wrote some software, and then they got busy with their day job or they went back to school or whatever it was. 
And there it is, right? It's like, hey, it's open source. You can have it. Billions like of projects. Say, it's kind of like furniture left by the side of the road, right? You can have the couch. You can put it in your living room, but you get all the quarters and you get all the bugs. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a there's an XKCD uh, comic <laughs> where it's the Jenga sort of Lego things styled up. And there's a little That's one right. down there's here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's right. so true. Yeah. Um, That's actually, that was on our, the open SSF. That was one of the things we had in our uh, announcement. <laughs> we yeah. had a little XKCD. It's it's perfect, and and we can move on in a second. I, I I just wanted to share, and we can talk about this actually offline. But I have a friend, an old friend at the Ford Foundation, who I know from like punk rock days, and uh, she spoke at uh, OpenJS World uh, recently. And anyway, we're talking about trying to to get a grant from them and and work with them at the LF. And I think security would be a really interesting thing to explore. So let's maybe talk about that more. Yeah. I'm curious, what are some of the things that, that you're excited about right now in, in the work that you're doing or research or, or? Very recently, one of my colleagues who was managing, so we have an open tech group. The open tech group is split down the middle where half of the team is working on cloud and cloud native kind of things. And the other half is working on data and AI. And so my colleague is retiring after uh, a long hit, uh, career. And so I took over the, the data and AI side of things saying, okay, I can, I've never been a manager, but let's give this a try. <laughs> um, but over the course of the, I would say the past year, I've started shifting a lot of my focus I had been working on blockchain, right, for a while. So I started shifting a lot of my focus to data and AI. I think it's fascinating. I taught myself Python and learned a lot about the different frameworks and so forth. That That's sort of the world that I'm in most now, if you will. Still keep a, a sharp eye on some of the other things. And the other part of my job is as an IBM fellow, I have to have more of a global influence and so forth. And I've been, as I mentioned, I'm trying to get the IBM company to be thinking about open source first. And so I actually have this initiative that we call the open source first initiative where I'm trying to get people to say, rather than the first instinct to be, let's develop something proprietary when we need some new capability, let's look at open source first. If there's something there, then let's see if that makes sense for us and let's turn that equation on its head. And so I'm also working to, try and get more and more things to be either put out as open source, because I don't see a reason why we have to keep things proprietary, as well as getting them to start looking first at what's already existent in, in open source. And so one of the teams that I've been working with is in research, and they recently published something that's actually not open source, but open data. It's actually also an open source project called CodeNet. And uh, basically what they have is they have a a curated data set of software that was entered into various contests. So it's been vetted. It's been reviewed thoroughly. And and so they they know that the software is doing what it's supposed to do. And so they've been doing machine learning on that foundation, that, that data set of vetted software. And they're hoping that they can leverage that to actually, whether it's to make recommendations as to, oh, I see you're trying to write a loop. Maybe you should do it this way as opposed to what you're doing, that kind of thing, to give recommendations in an IDE, for instance, as to how better to write something, to spot potential vulnerabilities before they uh, 
they actually reach the, the merge state. So when you're doing development, they can actually say, you're going to create a vulnerability here. So they put this out. It's gotten an awful lot of attention. But the other thing that it's done is it's really helped to see the value of taking something that we've done that's really cool and putting it out there because now we're getting a whole lot of credit in the machine learning space for, hey, that's really cool stuff. And so even some of our competitors are taking advantage of that data set and people are starting to write models around it. We'll be doing some and publishing those as well, but it really has helped the executives and research and elsewhere in IBM recognize the value of doing that. We had a similar success with blockchain when we open sourced the the IBM blockchain. We called it IBM Open Blockchain. We contributed that to Hyperledger, which I actually created as well, and created the Hyperledger Fabric project out of that. But there was a huge success, right, from an open source perspective. And it led to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for IBM in building services around that foundation. But it wouldn't have happened if we had been proprietary about it. It just, mm-hmm. it just couldn't happen. That is fascinating. And I actually, I didn't realize you had worked on the the Hyperledger and the blockchain stuff. I have some questions offline to ask you. I've been thinking about stuff. So I'm going to make a note to myself to to come back to that. But yeah, and I I could see how you were mentioning vulnerabilities. This could be really useful to tie into the last topic we were talking about. Things that would be, I'm imagining a lot of these things, indiscernible for a human or takes a lot of time for a human to discern it. But if, if you're able to maybe look at past exploits, past vulnerabilities, and then use AI to inform right. automation on looking for new ones. Right now, everything is basically pattern matching. So we're looking for exact matches, a signature, if you will, of a particular vulnerability. Um, this is actually looking at where is something, where does something have that potential? Because a lot of vulnerabilities actually happen, not because there's a piece of code that's flawed, but it's because then you lay it on top of a piece of hardware and then it boom, you know, and so there's an awful lot of things that don't necessarily get caught right away just from the scanning that we have today. I was reading a little bit about the code net and one of the things that I got excited about was, uh, and you were saying, or the documentation said it, it, part of it is because it has such good commenting and metadata around the code base so that now it becomes it's not it beyond that simple pattern matching you can almost get into a semantic ontology of how the code works if you just did machine learning on like all of github which i guess maybe somebody could do how much of that code is really good versus you know so you don't want you don't want to have the bias of really bad software practices to creep into your AI that's going to help make recommendations as to how you should write something. So this is actually, like I said, it's been vetted code. It was code that was contributed into uh, competitions. And so it's been, it, it's well-documented, it's well-structured, well-written because of all of that. And that that's what makes it different than just random code. One of the things that we do is we sort of, we keep an eye on what's going on out in you know the open source world, if you will. And there's a project that's sort of caught a lot of people's attention, Project Ray, that's being developed by some of the same people that developed Spark. And, and we've been taking a very close look at it. It does some very interesting things. Python is not by it. it, it trying to do multi-threaded Python is, is difficult, right? And so anytime you want to do some machine learning, and in this particular case, it's reinforcement learning this the, that Ray was built for, you want to run a whole bunch of things in parallel. Otherwise, it's just going to take you forever to train a model. And so they've written capabilities that allow you essentially to annotate your Python and or Java 
and have it run off and do things in parallel in, in separate containers and stuff. So this is interesting for a variety of reasons, but basically it can help accelerate the process of training models and so forth. That, so that's interesting enough, and that got the attention of a lot of the data scientists and so forth that are working on things like cloud pack for data, people that are working in research and so forth. But it also caught the attention of the people that are doing serverless work. And we have a project called uh, Code Engine, which does serverless. And so somebody had the brilliant idea of what if we layered Ray on top of Code Engine, right? So that we could actually fire off different threads in a serverless kind of a manner that would also then be parallelized. And so we could actually get even better, we, we call them pipelines, and so we actually presented something at the Ray Summit this past week. I was actually hoping it would be announced uh, yesterday, but I guess the actual announcement is going to be maybe after the, the the fourth weekend. But watch this space, as they say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting capabilities published as open source again. And it's the accelerating trend here from IBM, especially because we want to be able to collaborate with our colleagues over at Red Hat and everything they do is upstream. That's the that's the pattern that we're starting to see more and more of. And I'm, I, I couldn't be happier. It took me 20 years to get here, but <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'll encourage folks to follow you on Twitter to, to hear more about that. In the oh, yeah, yeah weeks. we'll be talking about that probably in another week or so. Yeah, exciting. And we'll definitely mention it when... In, a, in an upcoming episode in our introduction, and we'll add it to the show notes of this episode. Yeah, and then I would actually encourage, I'll connect with you guys afterwards, but it'd be good probably to have a chat with some of the guys that are working on this. I think it would be a would love to. Yeah, that would be great. Really great. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. I know we had a, a bunch of other things. How about the, the new data license agreement? Oh, yeah. we may, I meant to mention that with uh, the code net work. So we'd actually been collaborating with Microsoft and the Linux Foundation and a few others on, uh, you know, we needed to have an ability to license data. It's not open source, so there's different things to, to be concerned about. And you want to be able to license data for particular uses and so forth. And uh, so we came up with something we call the Community Data License Agreement, or the CDLA, and uh, it had uh, a cup had a sort of a sharing mode and it had a permissive. And the permissive mode was considered to be a little bit cumbersome, let's say, of a license. And so colleagues of mine from Microsoft and Linux Foundation, again, got together and said, we need to solve that problem because we really want to be able to publish data sets for machine learning and so forth that are, you know, fully permissive. So we wanted to have something equivalent of like the MIT license for data. It's essentially what we're looking for. And uh, so we actually came up with and just announced it this, I guess it was about a week ago, the CDLA permissive version two, which does exactly that. It gets us to a much cleaner and less cumbersome permissive license for the CDLA. And so we actually, one of the first things that we've published under the CDLA permissive V2 is the CodeNet data set. Cool. And there will be more coming. We actually have something called uh, the Data Asset Exchange. And uh, so we're, we're in the process now of working with research to and legal to get all of those that are written under the old CDLA1 permissive to, to adopt the CDLA2 permissive. Yeah, this is amazing and fascinating to me. This is what I love about open source, right? It's like, we have this problem, you have this problem. 
Let's get yeah. together, talk about it, solve it together, <laughs> totally. and everybody benefits. Uh, right. I think it's, you know, and, I don't and, and we're competing in the AI space, right? Obviously, yeah. Microsoft. But, you know, we're trying to get to a point where at the end of the day, there's so much that's really just table stakes. There's so much software that's basically just commodity capability, doesn't really differentiate. And uh, I think most software vendors are now realizing that there's really no value in trying to come up with a better version than somebody else because the community is just going to out-innovate you eventually, right? You may have a a brief advantage for a time, but then the community will come along and and do it for you anyway. Yeah, that's so true. I I don't know if this is a good segue, but uh, another thing we had talked about in the prep show was the Linux One build platform for the open source project stuff. Oh, yeah. So that's actually another cool thing. And just very briefly, a lot of projects, the Linux team, the Linux One team, I should say, the Z Linux team, they're trying to make open source more compatible with the mainframe platform. But a lot of people think, oh, the mainframe, that's like 1980s technology. <laughs> yeah. I got news for you. We've got some capabilities on the mainframe that will blow your mind. And we've got the full Linux capabilities on the mainframe as well. And But there, it's... Again, we have to do some, there's always some porting that's involved, right? And so it used to be the case, and it still is the case to a certain degree, that when we have customers that say, I want to run Cassandra on Z Linux, we have to do a little bit of porting and we have to do some maintenance to keep it patched and so forth. And the preference would really be, well, why aren't we just making the Linux One capabilities available in the cloud for people that are working in open source to use as a resource, the same way that, for instance, Intel did back in uh, the day with CNCF and said, here's a thousand boxes that you can use to scale and performance tests, Kubernetes and so forth. And, uh, and so we're in the process of making a build platform available for open source, trying to publicize it and get other projects to recognize it. You can just extend your Travis. If you're using Travis, for instance, to do your CICD, you can just extend it into this and have a build pop out the other end to make sure that it's going to run on Z Linux. And, uh, and then they'll help with, obviously, with remediation of any issues that you might run into. But the, the first step is really just making that build platform available to people to use. So, yeah, that's another, I think, a positive step that we've, we've taken. Yeah, that's great. I got to make sure. I assume my, my, my colleagues on the Node.js space are, are fully aware of this, but I'm going to touch base with them after this call. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to chat with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. This was fun. This was good. And as Joe mentioned, the hour just flies by. But again, if anybody has any questions that uh, there was some chat coming through, I didn't pass anything through. But any uh, if you're catching this on podcast, please feel free to check the show notes and and, uh, private message us. Tweet at us or yeah, or DM us or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Always happy to answer questions. Yep. Great. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate the time. This is good. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. You too. You too. Cheers. Take care.